Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, Political Outreach Director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's episode, Lauren chats with Representative Seth Bongartz for our deep dive conversation with an update on the critical housing policy. Later, I was able to catch up with Wisconsin Conservation Voters Deputy Director Seth Hoffmeister last week at the 2023 Conservation Voters Movement Conference in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. Seth shares about the incredible field organizing that his organization helped lead for Wisconsin to block Republican supermajorities in their legislature. Despite being a majority Democratic state, electing Democratic Governor Tony Evers for a second term in 2022, the state is plagued with the worst gerrymandering in the country. He talks about the undemocratic district maps that strengthen Republican control and hopes for reversing the movement thanks to last month's Supreme Court election, giving the court liberal control for the first time since 2008. Last week was an incredible opportunity for networking with other conservation voters organizations from across the country. I was able to participate on a panel about democracy policy efforts and protections in the state house with folks from New York and Montana. Molly Bell, the political director in Montana, spoke about Missoula representative Zoe Zephyr, a trans woman, being censured. And I was able to share more positive experiences happening in Vermont with friend of the podcast and trans legislator Representative Taylor Small of Winooski. Progress on ranked choice voting and expansion of the Voters' Right Act on the horizon was a positive glimmer and example for attendees in the room looking to make similar initiatives in their states. Sitting in on climate energy conversations and strategies for engaging in local elections and learning more about the New England Offshore Wind Coalition were just some of the highlights. And of course, any opportunity to rep Vermont is a fun one for me. And yes, I have met Bernie Sanders. And yes, somehow we keep electing a Republican governor who doesn't support key climate policies. And yes, town meeting day is really weird, but also kind of cool. (laughs) But now let's bring Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters into the fold um, to help me uh, find out what I've missed. Uh, This is for the session shakedown segment where we recap the week prior and look to the coming week of the session. All right, Lauren, I am so out of the loop. What did I miss in the state house last week? What was the hot action? So the biggest issue uh, was the veto of the Affordable Heat Act by the governor as anticipated. Uh, So that happened on Thursday. And so coming up this week, uh, the House and Senate are going to both vote on whether to override that veto. And so to do that, you need a two thirds vote in support of the legislation. So um, we're going to be working hard to try to line up those votes and get this bill into law. Uh, so that's going to be one of the highest profile things going on. Um, but we're also going to see action on the housing bill. So that bill is um, going to be up on the House floor first. And the House did make some changes to it. So then if assuming they pass that, it goes back to the Senate um, or goes to conference where they would work out any last differences. But we're considering that a must pass bill. So, you know, that will get worked out and passed almost certainly um, by the end of this week. Um, Also looking for action on the 30 by 30 biodiversity bill. Um, That's going to have to move pretty quickly through both. Uh, first the Senate uh, floor 
and then back over to the House uh, to see if they can agree with the changes the Senate made and get that to the governor. Uh, But we're kind of in the moment where you start running up where things might very well run out of time. So there's a few issues we've been following that are um, almost certainly not going to make it all the way through the process, like the bill to ban PFAS and other toxic chemicals from cosmetics and other products, and like the expansion of the bottle bill, both unfortunately do not seem to have enough time left to get them through the process. Okay, yeah. I mean, House leadership was eyeing a May 12th wrap-up of the session. Do you still think that's the target? Yeah, people are still anticipating that either Friday or Saturday of this week, it's not unusual that a session ends on a Saturday um, if they need a little bit of extra time to get through to the finish line. But um, but yeah, so far they seem to be kind of working full steam ahead to try to get out at the end of this week. Okay. And you mentioned the S5 veto override being a really key uh, action for this upcoming week. Is there anything else that we have our eyes set on for the for this week? The, the veto override is going to be the big one. And then just really making sure that um, the, the housing bill gets finished in a way that is maintaining really the smart growth principles. Um, you know, that's the kind of bill that is complicated and could go a lot of different directions, but, you know, making sure that it's both addressing the housing crisis and thoughtfully planned development. Um, so that's going to be, I think, probably the most high profile other issue that we're going to be really watching this week. All right. Well, it should be an interesting next week or so. Um, you caught up with Representative Seth Bongarts for uh, the latest on that housing policy. So let's hear that conversation now. So I am here with Representative Seth Bongartz of Manchester, and uh, Representative Bongartz was one of our early guests and had shared with us uh, some of the work that had been going on all summer and fall on housing and how the legislature could really take action to address this critical issue that's affecting every Vermont community. So I'm really excited to be back with him. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. And it's a really busy time, and so grateful for you making the time to chat with us. And really just wanted to start by getting an update on now that the bill has been through many committees and your committee, House Environment and Energy, um, has been working on it and voted it out. What are the key provisions that you think are going to make the biggest difference for addressing housing in Vermont? Well, the five, I think there's five sort of foundational pieces to it. There's a lot of other pieces as well, but the five foundational pieces are increasing density uh, of housing in downtowns. That's obviously a key objective here. Um, One is, and one of the ways to do that is by reducing parking. So that's one of the key pillars. Um, Another key pillar is height, uh, allowing, uh, if a a project has affordable housing and an affordable housing element in it, it is granted a a 40% density bonus. And one of the ways that that bonus can be realized at the at the uh, developer's uh, uh, discretion is to go up, and going up is one of the most efficient ways to build. It's also efficient from a land use perspective. So, um, so density five units per acre in areas with sewer and water. There's some caveats to that, but I won't go into those. Um, one parking space per unit in areas with sewer and water. Um, being able to go up the extra story, and then uh, the the fourth I call key pillar of the bill is one that says that anywhere you can build a single family home, you can build a duplex. Um, incredibly efficient, 
um, one foundation, one driveway, one set of services, and you get two houses. No more environmental impact, no more you know, use of land effective, really. Um, and you get housing for two. And that's a provision that adheres statewide, whether you have uh, municipal sewer and water or not. So it's one of the provisions that really um, is of particular importance to areas, uh, more rural areas than not. And the other provision um, that I think is one of the pillars is the buy right provision. And the buy right provision really says that if the zoning ordinance as it relates to housing says that you can do A, B, and C, um, what what happens now frequently is that when it, when it, so when it comes in, for a housing project, neighbors come in, object to it, um, and what this uh, and, and they tend, then they get whittled down at the zoning hearing because the zoning board is sort of caught in this vice between the applicant what the zoning ordinance actually says they can do and the neighbors being unhappy. So we go to the middle, and instead of getting you know in a given project twenty units of housing, you end up getting ten. Um, and what this what this would say is that if your ordinance says you get twenty you get 20. It cannot be negotiated away at the zoning board level. So what it really means is make sure your zoning ordinance says what you mean. Um, so, you know, there's other key provisions. There's a, there's a lot of other provisions in the bill. There's a lot of other things, but I think those are the five foundational pieces for the bill. That is a great overview. Thank you so much. Um, so that seems really exciting and some really meaningful change that's going to really be critical in addressing this issue. Yeah, and I, and I should just to go back to what I think we probably talked about uh, the, when we did the first interview is that, you know, the underlying premise for this also is not, you know, it's obviously we need to build housing. And if we're going to build housing, we want to build housing in downtowns. Uh, we don't want sprawl. So this is really an anti-sprawl bill as much as it is a housing bill. It's really doing, it's really sort of doing two things at once. And everything we can do to make it easier to build in downtowns takes that much more pressure off uh, the hinterlands. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for that addition. It's yeah. definitely been the frame that yeah. from conservation voters yeah. we've been bringing yeah. all yeah. along is like, yes, let's address yeah. housing and let's do it in smart, thoughtful yeah. ways. Um, great. So obviously a lot in this bill. Is there anything you would highlight knowing, for example, there's been a lot of conversation about Act 250 this year. Um, are there key issues that are going to be um, worked on over the summer and fall and brought back to you all next year for action? There's a couple of studies, few studies going on, actually. One that was started last year with the NRB looking at those sort of some of the foundational Active 50 issues, one of them being location-based jurisdiction. And another way to talk about location-based jurisdiction is to, is to really sort of begin to analyze which decisions should truly be made at the state level, which at the regional level, which at the local level, and under what circumstances and with what safeguards put in place and all of those, all of those things. Um, you know, as we know, you know, when Active 50 was passed 52 years ago, there really was no planning and zoning in Vermont. Um, and so Active 50 was called on to do everything. And a lot of towns have become a lot more sophisticated. We've got the regional planning apparatus in place now. And so the regional planning uh, offices have really helped municipalities do good work. Uh, and it, it, it is true that, you know, there is... Now and then, you could, you could you know, the, du the duplication, uh, it, there's some legitimacy to that. And so I think what, you know, the goal of the studies, uh, something that I think will be worked on over the summer, is really looking at, really trying to parse out um, under what circumstances we can devolve some authority, but do it in a way that actually positions Act 250 to do what it needs to do really well 
um, and just make sure that the region the regions have the right level of responsibility, and then the municipalities have the right level of responsibility. So that's a really uh, sort of complex technical um, uh, discussion that needs to be had, but it's uh, but it's time to have it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so. Thank you so much for that overview of what's in the bill, preview of what's going to be coming next year, and where does S100, uh, the housing bill, stand now? Well, um, just this afternoon, we well, voted out of my committee, uh, um, Environment and Energy, um, on Monday, uh, voted out of Ways and Means on maybe Wednesday, and voted out of Appropriations today, which means it'll be on a notice calendar tomorrow uh, in the House. And uh, and then on the floor on Monday, and so this is a um, this is a Senate bill, so it's already passed the Senate, and we will be taking it up in the House on Monday. And uh, assuming we get it through the House, and I think that'll happen, um, then the question will be whether the Senate simply concurs. And we've tried to uh, tailor our work or think about our work in the context of the work that the Senate did and, you know, try to, try to keep it all in a, try to, try to make the bill, try to improve it in a way that the Senate will look at it and go, okay, that's good. Mm -hmm. And concur. That's what we're hoping. Great. And there's been really strong votes through the committee so far. So that's promising. Yeah, really strong, really strong votes. Yeah. yeah. So that's exciting. Um, well, thank you so much. Really grateful. I know that you have been working on this, um, not only throughout this session, but well before and have, you know, a career of dedication to a lot of these issues. So really grateful for your time. And I'm going to now turn it over to Justin, who is interviewing Seth Hoffmeister of Wisconsin Conservation Voters. Seth Hoffmeister leads the Wisconsin Conservation Voters Political Program. His work involves directing strategy and resources toward critical elections at the local and state level in the Badger State. He started with WCV as an organizer in 2016 and now serves as deputy director. Welcome, Seth. Hi, Justin. How are you today? Lovely. Um, it's been great this past week. Um, we were at the CVM conference. Um, we got to hear all about Wisconsin's incredible initiatives around field organizing and elections. Uh, it's also been infuriating to learn about the gerrymandering that has occurred there. Um, in 2018, Wisconsin elected Democrat Tony Evers as governor. And then in 2020, Wisconsin went for Biden. And in 2022, Evers was reelected by an even larger margin, which is signaling that the majority of Wisconsin voters are more liberal. But you wouldn't think that by looking at the makeup of your general assembly. How did Wisconsin get to the situation it's currently in? Just set the scene for us Vermonters who may not be as tuned into Wisconsin politics. What's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Wisconsin, uh, 100 years ago, was this bastion of progressivism. You know, we were... Um, you know, one of the, the first states to invest in, you know, workers' rights, in conservation, uh, you know, we're, we're really the cradle of the progressive movement. Fast forward uh, about 100 years and uh, Scott Walker um, enters the stage. Um, we saw um, a complete re Republican uh, sweep, the trifecta, kind of the inverse of what we're seeing in Michigan and Minnesota, where we had our uh, Republicans take over. Um, our uh, our executive mansion, 
our assembly and our state senate and our supreme court so in 2010 you know really the first election with uh post citizens united where we have all this outside campaign money coming in they were completely able to um gut you know a, a century of progressive traditions um, and one of the most impactful and longest lasting and hard to reverse things that they did was uh putting in place gerrymandered maps. So really for the last 20, 30, um, even 40 years, Wisconsin has become more and more of a swing state. So uh, when we look at the electoral makeup right now, we're, we're really 50-50. Um, for decades uh, up until 2010, we were able to really have like a strong compromise or Democrats and Republicans were able to get along. Um, conservation was a really nonpartisan issue, but in the last decade, Republicans have really tilted the scales towards uh, control, and it's made um, the top of the ticket be uh, you know our our fifty fifty races where where we elect typically Democrats, but by very narrow margins. That's been juxtaposed by sixty four percent control uh, of Republican seats in our legislature. We uh, had been gearing up for, uh, you know, the last decade to try and get fairer maps, not even fair maps, but fairer maps uh, under our current system. And the U.S. Supreme Court kind of threw a monkey wrench in that. And going into 2022, we ended up with a set of maps that were even uh, more gerrymandered than the last decade. So like you said, we've been electing Democrats to statewide office. Uh, Evers won by more than three points. Uh, last election, the progressive judge won by 11 points this last election, but we still have nearly two-thirds control of uh, um, Republican seats in our legislature. Um, and yeah, it is it has uh, been called some of the most extreme partisan gerrymandering in the country, um, but luckily it's, uh, it's on its way out. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, and for folks who want a little bit more info just on to what gerrymandering even is, we do have a slide deck that uh, we'll be putting on our Instagram that goes into this and then um, both broadly and in Wisconsin. Um, I think this is a great reminder to Vermonters how quickly shifts can really happen in the dynamics of power at the local level. Uh, we shouldn't think of ourselves as immune from these movements. Uh, it, only 25 years ago, Vermont conservatives were rallying around Take Back Vermont, which was um, Vermont's movement for same-sex marriage and marriage equality. Um, and as a queer kid in Vermont in the 90s, it's certainly not lost on me. Curious how you feel, Seth, witnessing Wisconsin's political evolution and being a player in that. I mean, uh, great question. The the thing that I've been really astounded by and inspired by and in, in just the last few months um, is, is how far we've been able to come in the last decade. When I was in college and, and we had that uh, Republican trifecta under um, Governor Walker, we saw some of the most important Wisconsin values just getting stripped away. Um, we were really a petri dish for the policies that later became uh, hallmarks for the Trump administration. Um, it was uh, it was some dark days, whether it was higher education or um, environmental rights um, or workers' rights or anywhere in between. We were really backsliding fast. But um, over those last 10, 12 years, uh, grassroots organizations, activists, 
community leaders, state statewide groups and, and national groups like LCB have really proved that if things get get dark, if, if uh, you know, the fascists uh, gain ground, you can you can win back. Uh, you can win back some ground. I mean, every election in the last 12 years has been the most important election of our lives. Things got even more serious when Wisconsin went uh, for Trump in 2016. And we realized that uh, we needed to get our act together and it didn't need to be this way. Um, over the last several election cycles, it has been incredible to see um, all sorts of folks come out and, and try and advocate for our shared values and for the Wisconsin we love and, and for really making this place uh, one that is rooted in uh, justice and, and, and all of the things that Wisconsinites hold dear. So we have a long way to go, and we, we still really are a swing state. It was really inspiring to see Wisconsin uh, turnout for Judge Janet Protosewitz by 11 points uh, and to elect Tony Evers and to, to prevent a supermajority uh, veto override in our state legislature. But we also, in 2022, elected Senator Ron Johnson by just 0. 0.6 points. Perhaps the, and this is a this is a really competitive uh, uh, claim, but perhaps the most ridiculous U.S. Senator perhaps the one who is most steeped in conspiracy theories, Ron Johnson. So we are trending in the right direction, but every win that we have um, is really hard fought. But I think at the end of the day, when you do uh, as a state set your mind to something, you can create a movement to reverse uh, just some really, really dark things. Yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned the election of Janet Protasiewicz uh, to the Supreme Court just over a month ago. That gave the court liberal majority for the first time in over 15 years. So why is that? Why, I mean, you say all of these elections have been the most critical, but that one seemed particularly critical, especially in uh, with the topic of these maps, too. So can you explain why, why so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely right up there with the U.S. Senate race and the gubernatorial race, the most important election uh, that we've had in Wisconsin in the last year. But uh, I would argue that the U.S. Supreme Court race is the most important election in the nation in 2023. And that is for a lot of reasons. Here at home, uh, when it comes to conservation issues, the state Supreme Court um, will uh, inevitably uh, rule on corporate polluters. Uh, the person that we beat, Daniel Kelly, he was on the Supreme Court uh, for a short amount of time, and he consistently uh, sided with folks that gave him money. So when you're talking about like Enbridge, an oil pipeline company who is polluting uh, sometimes uh, on or near uh, native lands or, or really any uh, bodies of water and land throughout Wisconsin, we know that Dan Kelly's supporters uh, receive money from families who profit off of that company, and he has sided with them. Um, so we can't have somebody bought and paid for on our Supreme Court. When it comes to our democracy, though, it is really life and death. Um, after the 2020 election, um, and Trump and his team uh, were, you know, trying all these fri frivolous lawsuits around the country to try and undo our electoral points. Um, they they tried that in Wisconsin, um, and uh, they came closer here than they did anywhere else by um, just one point, uh, one vote, four to three. 
they rejected a Trump lawsuit that would have thrown out our electoral points. Wisconsin is the tipping point state when it comes to electing presidents. We unfortunately uh, played a big role in electing Trump in 2016, and we're just one Supreme Court vote away from undoing all of the things that Biden went on to later do. Um, So that is just huge. We saw insurrectionists coming to Wisconsin to campaign on behalf of Daniel Kelly. We saw uh, election conspiracy theorists energized and ready to go. Um, They recognized the importance too. Um, They ended up just saying the quiet part out loud uh, in that we need to elect Dan Kelly because we need to... uh, uh, be ready for 2024 so we don't reelect Biden. They are just hell-bent on undermining our democracy um, and undermining our votes um, and stomping out our voices. And, and luckily that extreme that extreme point of view just doesn't doesn't cut it for folks here in Wisconsin. And, and I think that played a big part in our um, 11, 11 point victory. But you know really the the biggest issue, um, in the last election for, for voters all across the state. And we saw the same thing nationally in November was the impact of the repeal of uh, Roe v. Wade. When our um, extreme United States Supreme Court uh, revoked Roe v. Wade, um, it put into place uh, in Wisconsin an, eight, an archaic 1849 abortion ban. We literally now have a law on the books from 1849 uh, governing women's bodies and, and outlawing abortion um, in, in nearly all instances. That was an extreme motivation for voters, both in November and in April. It's very likely now that that law will go before our state Supreme Court and be challenged. And now that we have um, a majority that governs with common sense and fairness and equality, um, we can hopefully make sure that our medical decisions aren't being governed by folks that have been dead for, you know, two centuries. Yeah. And so, and then they also now have the power to correct some of the gerrymandering as well, essentially. But that's a, that's a timely process I would assume, or. So it's a, it's a little bit uncertain as to how long it will take, but the Thursday after the election, a lawsuit was filed challenging the constitutionality of our um, legislative and congressional maps. So uh, the state Supreme Court will start hearing cases in like early August, the new term once Janet is sworn in. Um, and, you know, they kind of set up the dominoes and now they're going to get knocked down. And it, you know, remains to be a little bit of a question mark as to how long it will take, but it is possible that we could get new maps by um, November, 2024. So uh, for statewide office in November, whether it's, you know, uh, or state level office, rather assembly, state Senate, whatnot, you can start collecting signatures on April 15th and you have to file them to get on the ballot by June 1st. So it is possible that uh, we could get new maps uh, by then. Um, It would be a really tight timeline. um, And I think things moving through the legal system are always a little bit, uh, you know, there's there's never an exact science to it, but um, we are really hoping that we can have fair, fair maps for our next election. 
Yeah, so you wouldn't you would not need to wait for the 2030 census to have those maps redrawn. Correct. In, in and case. I mean if 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 we're not able to get them by 2024, you know, perhaps 2026, um uh, assuming the lawsuit is uh um uh, you know, the Supreme Court sides with the lawsuit um because there is, you know, there is absolutely no way we can have another decade of these maps. They're extremely unfair, and we are just two seats away in our 99-person state assembly from a supermajority. Uh, we have a supermajority in the state Senate, so we are um, hanging on for dear life here. <laughs> yeah, what was the... So what What did Wisconsin conservation voters, how did they play a role in these elections, and what strategies did you implement for such a robust field operation? Yeah, so coming out of November, um, you know, we were really happy to have had the largest independent canvas program uh, in the state. We knocked on uh, almost 400,000 doors going into November. We had one of the um, biggest uh, paid media mail programs for um, the governor, the attorney general, key state legislative seats, um, and, uh, you know, our, our really you know, grateful to have become, you know, one of the biggest electoral groups in, in a very important um, swing state in the country. So even, you know, before November uh, was, was complete, you know, uh, back in September and, and really for about a year prior to that, we we're looking at November and April basically as one big, long election cycle. Um, and we were starting to get our plans together. Um, and to figure, you know, understand that we were going to go from November and have to like stand up a, a, you know, a presidential level program in half the time in a lot colder weather. <laughs> um, the uh, the big the big curveball being uh, winter in Wisconsin um, and the unpredictability of uh, things like canvassing in that weather. So we, uh, you know, knowing that our program in the field was going so fantastic. Um, and that, um, uh, and that the key to winning, winning elections is just being able to talk to voters at the doors. We put together kind of a, uh, aggressive proposal to do a, a very big door program, uh, for the spring. And we knew we had a short amount of time to raise a lot of money to be able to stand that up. Um, but because we started early and because we had a, a very clear plan and because we were already running a program of that magnitude, uh, we were able to get through, uh, you know, our February primary um, and hit our uh, hit our first door just two days after that primary in, in late February. And over the course of five weeks, uh, we hit one hundred and fifty five thousand doors um, in uh, we had three offices throughout the state in, in key places where we knew we needed to either persuade voters or get people to turn out. So, um, you know, Madison or Dane County, that's always where a lot of the progressive votes come from. So just ensuring turnout there was high was a number one priority. And then we knew that if we could persuade folks and turn out our people in the Milwaukee suburbs, that that, um, that would really uh be the ball game and and we work really closely with all of our other electoral partners here in wisconsin so we knew that things like mail and digital and and other tactics would be covered 
Um, and, and because the separation is, is a bigger one, we're not able to knock in smaller municipalities, uh, but we knew that partners were, were really covering the map uh, when it comes to canvassing. And, and luckily, completely out of our control, but it went our way. The weather wasn't that bad for, for knocking doors in Wisconsin. We had a couple snowstorms uh, and ice storms that delayed us, uh, but we ended up uh, making up for it at the end of the day. So impressive. Uh, what advice would you give to grassroots organizers here in Vermont to make effective shifts in, in our elections? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think back to the story of Wisconsin over the last like 12 years and, and when things feel the most dark uh, and when things, uh, you know, feel like, you know, you, you can't do anything about, you know, these these big forces that are doing terrible things like you can, um, and, and whether it's a, you know, a small grassroots activist, uh, group in a neighborhood or, or one of the biggest organizations, uh, you know, nationally like LCV, um, there's just so much to be done at every level of, of government. And I think there are more folks out there who want good things for our community, who want, you know, clean water, who want, you know, climate justice, who want, uh, to live in a, uh, fair and, and equitable society. Um, and, and really it just takes showing up to, you know, whether it's a town hall meeting or a, a GOTV canvas weekend, um, the impact that we're able to have in our um, own backyards really, um, really snowballs. And, and in just a few cycles, uh, you can build some, some really big and powerful things. And, and when you start to build that momentum, um, it's just been astounding to to feel that shift here from from the darkest days to you know finally uh, having the light at the end of the tunnel. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the advice is the the difference that we can make uh, is 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 huge, even if it feels small. Well, before you go, I know that you closed out the CVM conference with some karaoke. So <laughs> we have to know what's your go-to karaoke song. <laughs> so I actually didn't end up singing karaoke uh, at, at the last place we were at. I was just shouting over the music uh, in the back. So my throat got pretty gnarled. Um, but I am always a big fan of Garth Brooks' Friends in Low Places. Uh, that is my go-to. Uh, when I do karaoke. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, nice equalizer, a nice yeah. 90s throwback as well. Well, right. what, thank you what so about much. you? I have oh, me? Oh, holla back girl. Always Excellent. gets the crowd going. It's a hard one to, to keep the energy up, but it's a challenge. <laughs> it's a fun one. <laughs> well, next well, CBM, think... we'll, we'll both do some, uh, we'll both do some karaoke. <laughs> yeah. I need to, I need to stay out later. That was my, I, I, I must've aged three decades on my trip to Minnesota. I, it was just, there was no going out too late for me. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that you were able to have the party vibes um, in my absence, but thank you so much. You are um, our first non-Vermont guest on this podcast. So you have the distinct honors of that. And um, it was a pleasure meeting you, of course, and the whole crew from Wisconsin. They, I had the pleasure of chatting with a few of them after my panel and talked about ranked choice voting and things like that. So um, it was lovely and uh, congrats on your recent wins and thanks for being on the podcast. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, next CVM or, or next uh, next political director meeting. And yeah, really, really great meeting you. And thanks for all the great work uh, you and, and all the listeners are, are doing in, in Vermont. Thanks so much, Seth. Take care. Now it's time for our stat of the week. 188 million. That is the number of people in the United States that may be threatened by gerrymandering in the next 10 years, according to a 2021 report by Represent Us. To determine the risk of rigged maps under current law, the report grades each state's laws across five key threats, building to a single cumulative score. Vermont's threat score was found to be high based on the answers to these five questions. Threat one, can politicians control how election maps are drawn? Yes. Threat two, can election maps be drawn in secret? Because Vermont doesn't have public hearings? Yes. Can election maps be rigged for partisan gain? Yes. And are the legal standards weak? Uh, They also found that this was moderate of a threat. Um, And the last question is, are rigged election maps hard to challenge in court? And this ultimately lowers our threat to just high instead of extreme because it only takes five citizens to group together to challenge a map to the Vermont Supreme Court. Perhaps some of the best (laughs) results uh, nationwide for, for that question. I want to thank our guests, Representative Seth Bongartz, Seth Hoffmeister of Wisconsin Conservation Voters, and of course, Lauren Hurl for assisting me. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at VoteGreenVT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback, email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Next week could be our finale. It will all depend on if the session is wrapping up. We'll, of course, keep you in the loop as the session winds down. Thanks for listening. 